and welcome to episode 220 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paradin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. Or actually, not here at Camp Shelby, here at my house. Uh, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Tech Submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore Submarine Squadron 3 at Pearl Harbor, and many other assignments. Bill, how are you this afternoon? Also at my house. <laughs> <laughs> This week, we are happy to have a return guest with us again. You've probably heard of or seen his YouTube channel, I would imagine, as most people who watch this channel have. Uh, he provides excellent doses of naval history, and we are glad to have him back with us today to talk about our topic. Please welcome back Drakenfeld. Drak, how are you doing today? Uh, I am, I'm awake, This is, which is a good thing, uh, considering the uh, the time gap between uh, where you guys are and where I am. But no, it's, uh, we are all awake, alert, and Happy and ready to go. Excellent. That's Outstanding. Good. Well, we got a cool little uh, topic to talk about here today, and we're going to get right into it. So as General MacArthur and his U.S. Army forces advanced up the Solomon's chain throughout 1943 as part of the Allied Grand Strategy in the Pacific with eyes at least initially on Rabaul as part of Operation Cartwheel, U.S. Navy eyes set upon the Japanese-held island of Bougainville in November. It had been decided that rather than invade what was known to be a heavily defended area, that of course being the all-important Japanese naval base at Rabaul, Allied forces would cut that position off, let it wither on the vine, so to speak. Uh, still, pressure had to be kept on the Japanese base, and while Rabaul was already within range of Allied aircraft, specifically medium and long-range bombers, another airfield was needed to allow light bombers and fighter sweeps to occur on a more regular basis. To that end, Bougainville was selected, or a section of it anyway, that would be invaded, occupied, and built up for the very purpose of strategic air attacks in Rabaul. The area around Cape Torakina and Empress Augusta Bay, with its fine anchorage and semi-protected harbor, were the primary targets of the Allied forces in November and on November 1st, 1943. Elements of the 3rd Marine Division and 37th Infantry Division did just that. Responding to the American invasion of Cape Torakina, the Japanese decided that a surface force would be sent to disrupt and destroy the shipping supporting the landings that had that had occurred, hoping to replicate their resounding success off of Guadalcanal on August 8, 1942 at Savo Island. The Japanese sallied forth with, with a significant cruiser and destroyer force bound for what they hoped would be a repeat victory at Empress Augusta Bay. Now, gentlemen, this is a this is a lesser known surface battle. We we've targeted some of the more popular ones, like you know Cape Esperance and first and second, you know Savo Island, you know November battles of Guadalcanal and Barroom Brawl, the battleship fight, and blah 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 blah. But this is a very important event because of several things, not the least of which is an introduction uh, into the combat realm of one specific United States naval destroyer officer who is was and is a legendary figure, uh, so much so that he had an entire class of ships named after him later on in his, after his passing. Um, destroyers. Destroyers, yes. Yes, well, appropriate, fittingly so. Um, so overall command of this theater lay in Bill and I's best friend, uh, hands of best friend, General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, and I say that, very facetiously, <laughs> with yeah. great sarcasm, because anybody who listens it's to the show knows. Far be it from me to criticize Joe MacArthur, but isn't he the guy who said he could take Rabaul with one division? Yes. And now we're dancing around Bougainville with a Marine and an Army division? What's up yes. with that? 
that would be the very one and the same. I don't. I don't know about how you, uh, how, how you, uh, Brits feel about old Dougie Mac track, but uh, um, I can't speak for the for the rest of my countrymen. But my personal feeling, as I've worked my way through the various Pacific campaign um, theaters, has essentially come down to the fact that I, I have a distinct feeling that if Admiral Nimitz had a dartboard in his office, there would be a picture of MacArthur on the bullseye. <laughs> he yeah. never seems to have caused anything other than trouble. I mean, you mentioned Rabaul, you know, at the beginning of all of this, you know, even before the landings on Guadalcanal, MacArthur was like, yes, we, sh we shall take, you know, the US Navy such as it is in early 1942 and the, whatever troops I can scrape up and we shall attack Rabaul. It was like, given how much of a struggle Guadalcanal was, how much of a disaster attacking an actually fortified Japanese fort base would have been. Um, yeah. And he, he didn't exactly stop after that. No, it, you know, it was that, that was a completely arrogant and foolish statement to make on his part. But, you know, and, and we're not going to bash old Mac here because we've done that enough. But, I mean, you know, if you look at even what he does in New Guinea in 1942... His whole statement about taking Rabal was just, you know, foolish to, to say the mm -hmm. least. But regardless mm -hmm. of that, regardless of that, he has overall command in this theater. So therefore, anything that happens, anything that this plan has to go through him, has to go through his hands. Um, at this juncture, MacArthur handed operational control of this area over to a very capable naval officer by the name of Admiral William F. Halsey uh, and Halsey's third fleet. Um, this operation does fall under Halsey's purview. Um, Halsey by now, you know, he's got a lot of skins on the wall starting all the way, you know, in the beginning of the Pacific War coming in, essentially saving the day at Guadalcanal once he takes command of the of, of the American forces in and around the seas of Guadalcanal. And he's pushing, uh, uh, keeping the pressure on right here. He eventually does. And, and we'll get to this point later in the war gets transferred you know, to the Central Pacific Drive, but this is not the time. Um, he's in charge of this operation here. Um, tell, tell, help me out here. The the naval uh, word is CHOP, as in Third Fleet is chopped to Commander Southwest Pacific, which is MacArthur, right? Mm -hmm. um, but Seventh Fleet, if I'm not mistaken, Seventh Fleet had already been um, stood up at this point, and they worked for MacArthur, why do we chop Third Fleet to MacArthur too for Bougainville? Well, more than more than anything, is that that's where the 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 vast majority of their resources are lying. The, the ships that we're going to talk about here, specifically uh, the cruisers and the destroyer forces under the command of Admiral Stanton Merrill, that we're going to talk about here in just a second. Um, that's where these guys are located. That's the, in their geographic location. They're still operating under the Solomon's area. MacArthur, MacArthur uh, Halsey is still in command of that South Pacific U.S. Navy force mm -hmm. um the force that you were referring to of course before is under the command of, or is it at this point spruance has got us or it's still under pow now does anybody recall i don't know yeah, I'm drawing blank right now standing up fifth fleet right so fifth fleet. That, that was later yeah I, I don't i don't recall um but within the command tree of Halsey's forces here is a gentleman uh, that we haven't heard of before, but he's a very important guy. And this is Rear Admiral Stanton Merrill. Uh, Stanton Merrill's job, it was it was his job to cover the American landings at Cape Torakina. Um, this You're going to hear a lot of 
references back to Guadalcanal in this episode, a lot of references back to Savo Island, not just because I like to talk about Guadalcanal, although I do evidence, you know, the what, 14 episodes we did on Guadalcanal, but um, 42 episodes on Guadalcanal. <laughs> seemed like it, but, but, uh, but there's a lot of things that, 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 that you'll see. You just, just hang loose and bear with us. You'll see. Um, under Merrill's command, he had a pretty substantial force here. And and Drac, I know we're going to want to talk about some of these ships, particularly the cruisers that are part of this force. Yeah. Um, he he had Crew Div 12, Des Div 45, and Des Div 46 under his command. Crew Div 12, which was under his direct command, meaning that he is aboard uh, the uh, flagship, which is the USS Montpelier. CL-57. It consisted of Montpelier, Cleveland, CL-55, Columbia, CL-56, and Denver, CL-58. These are the Cleveland-class light cruisers of which they, the U.S. made a friggin' fleet full of these damn things. And this is one of the first times that we really see them in some significant action, right? Let's talk about the Cleveland-class cruisers, Drat. What, what is your opinion on these vessels? The, the Clevelands are one of the one of the success stories of World War II, um, they're not quite at the same level of a success story going into the Cold War as some of their larger brethren like the Baltimores are, mm-hmm. um, but they're, they're definitely one of the most capable light cruiser designs out there because when you, when you look at the light cruisers that are available, um, you have obviously the immediate predecessors in the US Navy, the Brooklyns, um, you kind of have the Megamis for about five seconds before the Japanese switch them over to twin eights and turn them into heavies. Um, but really, other than that, they are their only other competition in the 10,000 ton um, six inch cruiser design category is the British town class. Mm-hmm. And okay, compared to the Brooklyn's, they drop a triple turret, but they have significantly more capable. Uh, protection schemes, significantly more capable anti-aircraft schemes as well. And of course, they're being built at a time when the treaty restrictions that you know, hold them to 10,000 tons exactly are no longer in effect. So although they're roughly speaking, they start out as a 10,000 ton design, um, by the time they're hitting the water, they're a bit over that, which allows them to integrate a lot more capability than you'd otherwise see. Um, the, the closest match you could probably get for them would be a British town glass because then you you got 12 six inch guns apiece. Um, you've got a slight variety in anti aircraft uh, fit out, etc. But the the Clevelands are good solid ships. They're capable of taking a reasonable number of upgrades as they will during the Second World War, where they've got enough reserve stability to carry radar and so forth without having to sacrifice significant portions of their main armament. And they're pretty durable, all things considered, as well. Um, the And the, the other thing that they have as a significant advantage is that they are modern light cruisers. Mm-hmm. The Japanese don't have any at this stage. Uh, the last Japanese light cruiser was built in the 1920s. Um, as we said, the Megamis have been switched over to heavies by right. the time this battle takes place. And although the Japanese will theoretically complete a handful of light cruisers during the war, um, none of them are particularly much to write home about. Um, the only ones they've completed at this stage that could be considered vaguely modern are a trio of training ships. Mm. Um, 
the Aganos are coming in, but they're not 10,000 tonners or close to it um, either. And yeah, they're, they're just generally, the, the Japanese don't have any answer in the light cruiser category to a mm. Cleveland, um, which gives them an inherent advantage straight off the bat anyway. And the, the Clevelands are... Go ahead, Bill. Go ahead. I'm sorry. If they don't have to comply with the Washington Naval Treaty, were we mm. able to put more armor on them than some of the heavy cruisers that did have to comply because they were built in the 20s? Yes. So, um, you know, the, the protection scheme on uh, the Cleveland class is up to five inches on the belt, which doesn't sound like a huge amount, but actually there are significant numbers of heavy cruisers out there from the interwar period that have thinner armor than that. Um, I mean, what I call the box turret series of US heavy cruisers. So the um, Pensacolas, Northamptons, etc., um, they're all generally significantly less protected than the Clevelands. Mm. Um, Portland. So, sorry, Portland class. Yeah, yeah, and those are those are eight-inch gun cruisers. So in theory, they're going to be matching off against ships with a bit more firepower, but they're less well protected than a Cleveland, uh, which mm. goes into explaining why most of the Clevelands make it through the war relatively speaking unscathed and um, they're also used uh the hull is used as the basis for the independence class like carriers yep. um which proves the, the versatility and overall stability of the design um and uh, it, yeah it's the uh, the clevelands i would i tend to refer to them as kind of an intermediate light cruiser class because uh, they they are designed initially to follow the treaty restrictions the design is then modified in light of the fact that restrictions have gone away but at its heart it's still a treaty era hull which is why you get the limitations post-war whereas so it's kind of yeah we've taken a treaty design we've revised it a bit to incorporate what we feel we need but there's only so much we can do with it um whereas if you look at something like a baltimore class the Baltimore class is kind of, albeit uh, it's a heavy cruiser, but that's the US Navy going, these are the capabilities we want. We're going to build a hull that's big enough to suit them all. Mm. Um, so they're the like genuinely post-treaty uh, cruisers. But, you know, th this, is, this is all going to come into play at Augusta Bay because, you know, the other th I think the other thing that is specifically worth bearing in mind when it comes to these ships in particular, but the Cleveland class in general, is that no Cleveland class is in commission on December 7th, 1941. Mm. And you think, how many photos of Cleveland class are there during World War II? They're all commissioned and put into service during the Second World War, which, you know, if there's any illustration of the uh, ridiculous industrial um, advantage that the US has over Japan, it's the fact that these things are popping up, you know, like weeds, whereas the Japanese are throwing together, you know, half a dozen small training ships and right. so forth in the same time. To, to your point, Drac, there were 52 Cleveland-class cruisers ordered. 36 were completed. 27 were completed as cruisers, and the other nine were completed as light aircraft carriers, uh, escort carriers. Um, so, I mean, that's think that think about that for a minute. 27 light cruisers of this class were completed and sent to the fleet. At one point or another during World War II, that is a stupid amount of ships that is produced. Uh, and, and it's not only the production, is that obviously if they're going to punch out this many ships, it's a 
damn good design. And one of the things that the Clevelands had, aside from what you just went into, mm. was their rapid firing six inch guns. These things can lay the lead out. You know, we've talked about, you know, in the Guadalcanal episodes about USS Helena and her, you know, they called her the machine, the Japanese called her the machine gun cruiser for crying out loud. Um, the Clevelands aren't far off in terms of rate of fire. Um, they tend to be a little more, um, accurate i guess you could say and they're also at this point in the world they're equipped with a little bit better radar than even helena had during during the guadalcanal campaign um these things can put out a lot of a lot of gunfire in a very short amount of time um aside from the cruisers in uh merrill's force there are several destroyers uh desdiv 46 is under the command of a gentleman named uh commander bernard austin and it, his uh division consists of uss spence the thatcher the converse and the foot uh the other destroyer division desdiv 45 is under the command of a gentleman named captain arlie burke uh under his command and he's he's a legend under his command is the uss charles osborne the dyson the stanley and the claxton these all are to my knowledge, unless I'm wrong and I don't think I am here, they are all Fletcher-class destroyers. Um, we talked about some of the Fletchers at Guadalcanal, the Fletcher, of course, being one. Um, but, Drac, let, let's talk about the Fletchers. This is I don't think it's arguable that this is the most successful American destroyer of World War II, probably the most successful destroyer of the war, period, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they actually are basically one of, if not my favorite, destroyer class. Because they encapsulate pretty much everything that you can do to build a perfect destroyer in World War in World War II. Um, there are destroyers that have more torpedoes than them. There are destroyers that are faster. There are destroyers that have more gunpower. Um, but any of those destroyers trade off one of those other elements. The other, yeah. um, so you know, the British Tribal class has eight guns versus the Fletcher's five, but only has one set of torpedo tubes. Um, some of the Japanese destroyers have like five, six knots on her, but they don't have dual purpose weapons worth writing home about, um, which the Fletchers do. And, you know, yeah, they might be carrying long lances, but again, they're in a gunfight. The five inch 38 massively outclasses them in a surface action as well as in anti aircraft. Um, one of the other things which contributes to a lot of Fletcher's survivability is that she's actually built. With excuse me, she actually built not not just with STS steel, but she's also built with slightly thicker hull plating. Because um, a lot of destroyers during the war that are lost or very badly damaged are not necessarily destroyed by direct hits; they're destroyed by near misses. You know, if a five hundred thousand pound bomb goes off thirty feet away, on standard destroyer plating, fragments and blast might cause enough leaks to either eventually sink the ship outright because you can do damage control but if you've got 400 small holes there's only so many holes you can plug right. um or you know a leak into the engine room and that's it you're stuffed um whereas the fletchers are are built somewhat thicker mm. so they're not as vulnerable to shrapnel and blast effects from near misses which helps a lot because they're very good at dodging otherwise um and the other thing that i think you know, all credit to the guys who are in charge of designing the Fletcher, is that in the late 1930s, the US Navy actually had a little bit of a bad run of destroyer designs mm -hmm. because they tried to massively overgun them for the displacement that they were doing. And the Sims class was kind of the epitome of this. They put the Sims 
they well they they didn't even put the thing into service they they even looked at it while it was under construction and suddenly realized there's far too much weaponry up top we launch the thing it's going to roll over okay. um they took some of the stuff off and put sims into service and went yeah she'll stay afloat as long as the sea doesn't get up beyond about a four foot wave so uh she had to come and have even more stuff stripped off and then you, you know a couple of years down the line they're designing the fletchers and some genius basically goes what's the firepower density of the sims we're going to apply it to this bigger hull so you're just going to end up with a bigger more expensive version of the same problem and several officers in the design department managed to reel that in and you effectively on the Fletchers get what the Sims class was supposed to have in terms of weaponry, five main guns, two sets of torpedo launchers, etc. But on a significantly larger, significantly more durable and longer range hull. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be pretty much perfect. Um, the Fletchers can defend themselves well against air attack. They can do pretty well in a surface action. They've got enough torpedo tubes to be a threat to um, surface ships, as you know, various elements of the Japanese Navy would find out at the Battle of Samar, when Johnston basically does like a near, almost, not quite, but almost one-man holding action against them. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they're, they're near enough the perfect World War II destroyer. And the other thing, which similar to the Clevelands we were talking about, they are because they have not been over overbuilt they are actually capable of receiving tremendous amounts of upgrades as mm-hmm. the war goes on uh, because when they're launched you know there's you know maybe some 1.1 inch or maybe if they're lucky a 20 mil available for aa whereas by the end of the war there's 40, both as 40s all the 20s you know, it's air search, sea search, gunnery control um radars yeah. and backups to all of those which on a lot of the older ships like Benson's and Farragut's, they're either having to say, okay, we won't have this, or we're going to you know, remove gun turrets, remove torpedo launchers. The Fletchers go through most of the walk able to retain their original designed heavy armament plus all these upgrades without facing too many issues. And it's only right at the end of the war when they're going absolutely all out on the anti-aircraft batteries that you start to maybe have to sacrifice an item from your heavy armament, which is almost unheard of for destroyer designs, especially, you know, pre or early war destroyer designs, uh, which is, which is quite the remarkable feat. And that's one of the reasons why so many Fletchers continue to serve for such a long time post-war, both in Mm -hmm. the U S Navy and in various other navies, because they're almost endlessly adaptable. Mm -hmm. To your point, uh, the Fletcher class destroyer USS kid, which is only about Mm -hmm. 70 miles, uh, west of my house right now um she is minus a set of torpedo tubes and she has an extra set of 40 millimeter bofors mm-hmm. for that very reason uh, to to better use as anti-aircraft defense uh, and 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 they and if you look at images of of the fletchers from 1942 when they first see action until 1945 when they're pulling radar picket off of okinawa and karamaretto and places like that they are vis- visually Unchanged, you know, the, the paint schemes are different. You know, they might not have the model camouflage that did in 42, but they look exactly the same. And that's a, it, perfectly to your point is that they underwent some changes, mm. but not many. And, and they were a phrase I use often. They were harder than woodpecker lips, man. They were hard ships to sink. They, they could take a licking and they could keep on ticking. And they were just, they were just damn good vessels. So this is a point in the war in the Pacific that you, 
again, to your point, you really see the industrial might of the United States starting to roll. And not just the number of ships, but the quality. You know, know, you're still going to see ships like the USS San Francisco, which is – you know, uh, New Orleans class heavy and the New Orleans herself, heavy class, uh, heavy cruiser that you sees a lot of action off Guadalcanal. But as Bill and I have discussed before, they kind of had a glass jaw in their bow section that they would lose their bows. You know, <laughs> they would just they disappear. You know, New Orleans lost her bow to a long lance. Point is, is that the, the ships that are being produced now for the U.S. Navy, be it the Fletchers, the Clevelands, the, you know, Baltimore's later, you know, the Iowa class battleship, the Essex class, these are high, high quality naval vessels that are coming out of the ways that are equipped with, at that time, state of the art technology, weaponry, radar, sonar, you name it, whatever. And these things are leaps and bounds above what was patrolling the coast of Guadalcanal in 1942. Yeah, and I think there's, there's two there's two additional elements to that. One of which is that, um, you know, this is in some ways the engagement we're going to talk about today is almost the tail end of the broader Solomon Islands campaign that starts with the Guadalcanal campaign, and at the end of 1942, to a certain degree, both sides were kind of on the ropes a little bit when it came to ship numbers. So many destroyers, carriers, um cruisers and in the Japanese case some battleships had been lost that they were really running low yeah but the Japanese in 43 are going we don't have like we've we've lost these ships we haven't managed to really to replace many if any of them so we're having to be very careful and sort of building scratch forces here and there whereas the US has shown up and you know as with these formations just like no here have a block of ships that are all functionally identical and right. also carrying the latest technology and now they've got even more ships in the theater than they did at the start of the war when the fleet was in intact right um the and another small element which is probably not necessarily appreciated by the general public so much is also the machinery um the US ships are running at around about 550 600 psi on their machinery which gives them considerably better um power density and efficiency on their machinery as compared to a lot of other nations in world war ii who are either running at lower pressures or if they're running at similar pressures like the germans um if you look at photos of the interior of a U.S. destroyer cruiser battleship that's running on 600 PSI machinery, yes, it's complex. It's an engine room. They're always going to be complex. But once someone explains to you where things go, it doesn't take too long to figure figure it out. It's for a high-pressure steam plant. It's a relatively simple one, um, which is very easy to operate and maintain. Whereas if you look at a German equivalent <laughs> um there are so many ancillary and regulatory systems it's almost like trying to play an organ blindfolded just to keep everything in in commission um which is why a lot of well the surviving german ships tended to suffer catastrophic machinery failures um post-war when they everyone was trying to get them to move to you know atomics testing sites and so forth whereas the u.s machinery plants would just quite happily keep going so, so you're saying the German Germans overbuilt things? What? No. Yeah, <laughs> just just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, fine, fine. When it came to the Marines, they needed to overbuild them because they lost so many. Yeah, they did. Over seven, right? So yeah, yeah, they did. Well, you know, a ship is as good as a ship is, but it's even better when it's under the command of 
men who are capable of performing the job. Mm. Uh, let's talk about the overall task force commander here, a guy named Rear Admiral Stanton Merrill. He is class Naval Academy class 1912. Um, all of his sea service until World War II was either on cruisers or destroyers. So this guy's a gunboat guy. He 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 is a surface warrior. He doesn't know anything but. Um, he eventually commands De, uh, Destroyer Division 8 in 1936 and again in 1939. Um, in 1942, he was assigned as the commanding officer of USS Indiana, which is a battleship that you, frankly, don't hear a lot about for one reason or another. This is, of course, a South Dakota-class battle wagon. We've talked about Sodak at length at Guadalcanal. Uh, you're going to hear about Massachusetts and, and, of course, you know Alabama, which is only two hours from my house over here in Mobile, Alabama. But Indiana is the forgotten South Dakota-class battleship, and she's forgotten for whatever reason. I frankly don't know why, but uh, maybe it's Indiana. I, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> fine ship all the way around. Um, upon promotion to Rear Admiral, uh, Merrill is given command of Task Force Task Force 68A, which is 68, which is a cruiser and destroyer force operating in the Solomons. Of course, this is what we're going to talk about here in, in the next few minutes. Um, in March of 1943, and this is important, um, you know, we've talked about radar a gazillion times, but uh, in March of 1943, using only radar directed fire. Uh, Merrill's forces defeated the Japanese in a relatively unknown battle, the Battle of Blackett Strait, uh, in which his force of three light cruisers and three destroyers engaged and sunk two Japanese destroyers using only radar-directed fire for this action. He's awarded the Navy Cross. So, you know, he's one of these um, later task force commanders that come in the theater after, you know, Norman Scott and Daniel Callahan and willis lee while the willis lee's still there you know it's it, it, it he's a believer in radar and he puts it to expert use here at blackett Strait, and he's going to do it again here at empress augusta uh, to an extent um he's 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 a newer general even though he's of the same age group as a lot of these other commanders i just spit out the names of but he's a newer generation in that he's adapting to the technology as it's progressing which uh some task force commanders in the United States Navy simply did not do. And that's why you generally don't hear of them after their one and only command, Baldy Pownell. But, um, you know, there are people like that that simply just don't adapt, but he does. Um, one of the other commanders underneath him is a guy named Bernard Austin. Uh, he's class of 24 Naval Academy. He, too, spent time aboard many different vessels, including battleships, destroyers, and submarines, specifically our boats, Bill. That's an old boat right there, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> In the 1920s. In the 30s, he taught at the Academy, was PAO for the Navy, and eventually landed on Admiral Gormley's staff in London in 1940. Uh, we've talked about Gormley before. Uh, he... Kind of he would have been shirt. not very busy if he was PAO for the Navy during Ping's tenure, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very true. He's a destroyer man at heart, regardless. And uh, he gets his first command in 1942, the USS Woolsey in the Atlantic, uh, before being reassigned to the Pacific, where he eventually commands Destroyer Division 46. Now, let's talk about the guy that I've wanted to talk about since we started this, <laughs> that being Arleigh Burke. Bill, you knew Arleigh Burke, did you not? Well, yeah, I met him. Maybe it's a little too much to say I knew him. The chief of naval operations always have something called a former CNOs conference. And in the mid-90s, I was um, on the Navy staff and in a position that I jokingly referred to as the SLJO position. 
The LJO stood for Little Jobs Officer. You can guess what the S stood for, mm-hmm. S, Little Jobs Officer. And and during the uh, 95, I think it was, former CNO's conference with um, Mike Borda, a CNO. It was Arlie Burke's last former CNO's conference before he wasn't able to attend anymore. And I was his escort, um, um, whatever, during that. I did get him to sign my book. I keep teasing you about all the books I've had signed by these great guys there, Seth. Um, but yeah, I had a very brief conversation with him, but mostly listened. He's he is a legend in his he was a legend then, really, frankly. His legend was being born, mm-hmm. but he was a legend then. He's class of 23 Academy, mm-hmm. served aboard battleships, destroyers, and the early part of his career. Uh at the start of the war, much to his chagrin, uh, he was spending his time at the Naval Gun Factory in DC and was not at sea. Uh, finally, in 1943, he was sent to the South Pacific, South Pacific, where he would spend the remainder of the war. Drek, what is your opinion of this gentleman here, Arlie Burke? Where do you want to um, work? He, he's, he's one of these officers who absolutely shines when it comes to war. Um, but unfortunately, in a bureaucratic Navy, in some ways, he was probably relatively fortunate in a way, to be in the Naval Gun Factory in the run-up to to World War II, because the kind of officers that, you know, Burke is is one of, they tend to be a little bit too free-thinking for the likes of a peacetime Navy, Mm -hmm. which means if you keep them at sea long enough, they'll do something that displeases their superiors because it isn't by the book, and then they either get their career killed or get drummed out of the Navy, and then you don't have them when you actually need them. Um, Or they... Or they become known as mavericks and heroes. Yeah, and this is the thing. It's like you know, if you if they somehow either manage to arrive at just the right time uh, in a time of war, or you know, you've stored them ashore for whatever reason, it's really di- relatively difficult to you know run a gun factory aground. Um, you know, but if, yeah, and then he you get you if you've actually got these people and they've survived the the interwar peacetime bureaucratic process, these are the guys who will absolutely take you to victory and take you to victory not just in a way that underlines the industrial might that we've talked about before, but also it, it will take you to victory in a way that preserves as much of your own shipping and as much of your own men as possible mm-hmm. because uh, and you see this with some of the some of the best US navy officers in the pacific campaign including uh Arlie Burke is that that they are aware certainly by this stage and definitely as you go on through the war they're perfectly aware that they could afford to fight an attritional sort of world war 1 trench warfare at sea battle with the japanese and they're going to win because they have five, six, seven times as many ships. But they're also aware that they don't want to do that, because uh, that's a very easy, very lazy tactic. And so they take the ships that they've got, and they form them into formations that not only can go toe-to-toe with the Japanese kind of 1v1 equal numbers and win, but in a number of engagements, they will e- eventually end up going toe-to-toe with the Japanese in where locally they actually have less numbers and the Japanese might have local numerical superiority, but they still win with relatively minimal losses. Um, And those are the kind of officers that I really admire because um, I've mentioned this a a few times on my channel, is that you can have officers who are brilliant um, 
in a way that you can throw them in a completely unexpected situation and they'll probably come out victorious, you know, regardless of what the odds are stacked against them. But sometimes those officers will come out victorious, but with a very high casualty list on of their own. Mm-hmm. Whereas officers um, like Fletcher or Spruance or Burke, they have the tactical skill, but they also have the strategic knowledge to plan ahead. And those are the kind of guys who I like to use the phrase, they won the battle six months ago. You know, they had everything in place. They had the men, they had the ships, they had the training. It wasn't really going to be a question of what the outcome of the battle was going to be. It was just going to be the formality of holding the battle and then being able to say, well, that was the expected outcome. What else was going to happen? Um, And that's usually battles where most of your side comes away intact as well, which is always a, a big plus. Yeah. He was, you know, to your point, he was keenly, he being Burke, he was keenly aware of the plight of American destroyers so far in the Pacific War. Uh, and ag- again, we're talking about, uh, with the exception of the few, the what, three, four Fletcher class destroyers that are at the Guadalcanal campaign. And I'm talking about from, you know, the heady days of, you know, October mm-hmm. through the end of the campaign. Most of those DDs were older boats, older ships. Uh, you know, they were using pathetic torpedoes. You know, they were not the same class of vessel, literally and figuratively, that we're going to talk about here today but he 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 was keenly aware that those ships for the most part with a few instances he otherwise had underperformed uh, that they had not done what destroyers theoretically are supposed to do and even when they were supposed to do them they didn't do it very well uh he felt that the role of the destroyer was not being used to its greatest effect of course that being a torpedo attacker and felt that speed and decisiveness are what separated success from defeat those are his words. Um, Burke's standing order to his task force was always destroyers to attack on enemy contact without orders in capital letters from the task force commander. And this is something, Bill, you'd made in an episode way back when, I forget even which episode it was that we did, that you talked about this, is that that was his standing order. Um, and he kind of learns this the hard way by looking at the things that happened on the seas around Guadalcanal and seeing that specific admirals don't allow or whoever don't allow the destroyers to go in there and launch their torpedo attacks and then you know beat feet and get out of there but they're they're keeping in station you know with the cruisers or whatever the case may be and they and they're not the being initiative. put huh they withdraw the initiative yeah Retain yeah initiative. right yeah exactly exactly they're not allowed to do what they're designed to do so merrill's orders to his People here are, quote, screen the transports and support vessels from Japanese air and surface attack, unquote. Pretty easy, right? Uh, to that end, U.S. amphibious doctrine had evolved significantly since the landings at Guadalcanal in August of 1942. As opposed to that era, which was a little more than a year before, uh, when very little was done to repel an expected counterattack, Savo Island, and no clear standing orders were given to the surface forces around Savo Island, the United States Navy had prepared for a Japanese reaction exactly like the one that there was that the Japanese themselves were about to launch. Um, we're going to hear different reflections on Savo here because this is what the Japanese are trying to replicate. They're trying to replicate their success at Savo, and the United States is trying to not replicate the <laughs> Japanese success at Savo Island. Um, mm-hmm. And this is extremely important here, and this is one of the reasons that, you know, 
things evolve the way that they do. Bill, we talked about, and Drac, I know you know this, that the, the plight of the U.S. Marine Corps on Guadalcanal in early August, September days was due mainly to the fact that the United States did not, and I'm talking about like supply situation, mm. not just being bombed daily, but uh, the supply situation is that the United States Navy under Richmond Kelly Turner at that time did not properly plan to unload and disgorge their cargo in a reasonable amount of time. Um, at that time, I believe Kelly told Fletcher that you know he's going to need five days to unload his transports, and there's the whole conversation. You know, Fletcher says, "I'll give you three, da 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 da," and it goes back and forth. At this point, this is November 1943. Um, at Cape Torquina, the transports, American transports, disgorged 14,000 men and 6,200 tons of material in eight hours. <laughs> that is mind-boggling, man. When considering the fact that they couldn't even do half of that in three days at Guadalcanal, five days, eight hours, they spit all these people out. That is yeah. absolutely astonishing. And a lot of this, you know, it's reflecting. I mean, as we're going to cover, there's so many lessons learned from the Guadalcanal campaign, but this is one of the key things because the ability to transport large amounts of men and material was never something that the US Navy was particularly short on. Um, they'd had plenty of exercises, um, both on paper and in you know, fleet problem wargaming um, at, at sea in the interwar period. They knew how to move large amounts of stuff from point A to point B. What they hadn't really figured, and to be honest, what a lot a lot of people hadn't figured, was if you don't have a fixed port facility with cranes and wharves and docks and everything, how do you get all of that stuff off when you get to point B? Right. Um, and and that's why you see some of the stuff, as you mentioned, in August September, where you know there's to try and speed things up, you've got ships lowering their boats. And that those boats are just wandering back and forth with sometimes even sometimes even just being rowed because you know it, it gets another half ton or ton of supplies ashore that wouldn't otherwise go ashore. Um, but the US is very rapidly developing this not just amphibious troop landing capability, but ability to effectively land supply the supplies to back up those troops in an area that has no fixed facilities right um and of course that then that as as time will go on you'll see that like normandy and in the latter part of the pacific campaign with the cbs that they go well okay we can get x amount ashore when there's no port facilities but what if we could build our own really quickly yeah, yeah portable <laughs> which is a whole other level beyond it's just like yeah it doesn't matter if there's a port if there isn't a port of the enemy's blown blown one up we're going to bring a flat pack one with us yeah yeah it, it's it's amazing the evolution of things as they happen just in this short amount of time and that that's the key is the short the, the period of time you're talking august 1942 to november 1943 the vast differences in in the way things are done here you you can literally see american amphibious doctrine developing as the war goes on with every single operation it gets better and gets better and gets better and gets better so the japanese are initially surprised by the landings uh around torakina and at that point almost instantaneously and they are pretty they are still relatively fast when it comes to responding to any type of threat and this is no different um <clears throat> 
excuse me, they scrabbled together a counterforce to deal with the shipping off the coast. I mean, the Japanese are no, they're not stupid. They're aware that American transports are going to be there. They're aware more than likely that there's going to be an American cruiser destroyer force and maybe something else around that area to protect that shipping. Therefore, they need to go in there and knock that shipping out of the way. Um, they're also planning for a potential counter landing in that area, not at the same beaches, but in that area as well. That winds up getting scrapped, and I forget exactly why. I don't, maybe one of you guys recalls why, but there's a reason why that does not go through at this point, and I frankly don't recall. Um, a new Japanese commander comes onto the scene here, and this is a guy we've never talked about before, and for reasons that you're going to see, we probably will never talk about him again. <laughs> uh, his, uh, the combined fleet Admiral uh, Admiral Koga, and this is not the guy that I'm referring to, but Admiral Koga, who takes over for Yamamoto. Yamamoto, of course, is killed in the air raid by P-38s that are flying off of Henderson Field, by the way, um, instructs that a counter landing with a thousand plus troops and a surface force must be dispatched within 24 hours to assist in repelling the American invasion at Cape Torokinan. Uh, the closest surface force that would be able to execute said command was Cruiser Division 5, and this is the gentleman I was referring to, under the command of Vice Admiral Omori Santaro, uh, then at Rabal. This is a guy I've never heard of before until this event. Have you, either of you, ever heard of this gentleman before? He doesn't really leave a lasting impression in the minds of anybody after this event either, does he? He just kind of, yeah, he kind of just appears yeah. and, and and disappears. Um the about the the only thing that I would say is kind of notable is that the fact that he's even there at all mm-hmm. is kind of symptomatic of the inflexibility of the Japanese command structure and expectations, even at this stage of the war. Mm-hmm. Because um, you know, as as you mentioned, US doctrine is evolving very rapidly. Right. US Navy the US Navy structure and its ability to rapidly change doctrine didn't that capability wasn't really there at the beginning of the war it was very ossified and you know very hierarchical but they learn really quickly um you know you and you see this all across where you even things like the lessons that, that learned about carrier damage control at coral sea are mostly in place by midway whereas in japan they'd be like halfway up the command structure gradually filtering upwards to yamamoto as a first stage suggestion perhaps if they hadn't just beaten the officer with sticks when he came up with the idea um for daring to suggest the emperor's ships weren't already perfect um but you know similarly with with here the the japanese all through the Guadalcanal campaign and now going into the broader solomon's campaign have this really weird habit of the admirals that actually get a degree of success, they seem to almost be criticized for not winning hard enough. Mm-hmm. Like poor old Admiral Makawa probably yep. has the most successful attack. And the response from that is, well, you didn't kill absolutely everybody. Mm-hmm. So we're going to send you to some backwater um, and put someone else in charge. And the same thing keeps happening over and over again. And then the ones who bizarrely don't succeed very well are given like second or third chances yeah. to try and redeem themselves and you know whereas if you if you were to flip the situation around if it had been the US navy that was on the defensive people like Makawa um or Tanaka would still be there yeah but instead the japanese have sent all their best officers off to some random part of the um sort of the southwest asian coast and now we have this guy. Yeah. 
Yeah, Tanaka is a is, is a is a good one to mention because I mean he the operations he performs and trying to resupply Guadalcanal are are nothing short of miraculous, frankly. Uh, he's he's he was a hell of a hell of a uh, naval officer and one who gets unceremoniously just kind of kicked to the curb. But this guy Omori, he's got a pretty substantial force at his hands too, and these are the guns ones that are going to go to battle with Merrill's people. He's got two heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and six destroyers. He's got the Miyoko, the Hoguro, the Ogano, and the Sendai. Um, he's uh, the, the the destroyers. I'm not going to get into the names, but this, he's got a fairly substantial force. These Sendai's an older ship, but Mio well, they're all older ships, but Miyoko and Hoguro are pretty significant vessels, are they not? Yes. Uh, so Miyoko is the lead ship of their interwar heavy cruiser designs. So they kind of with with a few minor variations as to which turret is taller than the other. Um, Miyoko is kind of their their trendsetter. All of their heavy cruisers at this stage will have ten eight inch guns, three tri- three twin turrets forward, two twin turrets aft. As I said, they they play around a little bit with whether a, a B or C turret is the higher or the lower one. But um, their Miyoko and Hagura are both ten thousand ton on paper, at least <laughs> yeah. uh, eight inch heavy cruisers. Uh, Agano is the the one modern vessel. Uh-huh. Um, but it's a small light cruiser. Um, and Sendai is kind of, we have this relic lying around. Um, we're not entirely sure what to do with it, but it's something. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a it's of the same ballpark as an Omaha class, mm-hmm. which we know the U S by this stage is relegated to second line duties. Um, but it's less capable than Omaha class because yeah. it's not as quick, it's not as uh, it's not as heavily armed, etc. Um so yeah, that it, it, you you have you have this slightly weird combination of Miyoko and Haguro theoretically carry significantly more firepower gun-wise and torpedo-wise than the Clevelands. Mm-hmm. Um but Agano and Sendai are, you know. Personally, I wouldn't even put money on Agano and Sendai combined against a single Cleveland. So yeah. the extremes. As, as we shall see here shortly. Mm. Um, Omori, as stated before, wanted to replicate Mikawa, the gentleman we were just talking about, his victory at Savo, with one small exception, that being he would also attack the transports. That was what Mikawa was criticized for, of course, is not attacking the transports. And we've been into that. But um he wanted to attack the transports where he expected them to be. And of course, as we will see, those transports are, they are history. Um, as opposed to Makawa, however, Omori's forces had never fought together before, um, nor had they trained together before as a cohesive force. And this is important. His scrabble together force was ad hoc at best, to your point, Track. You know, they weren't, um, it was not even close to the same class as Merrill's people and the vessels under his command. Uh, it's nighttime or it's a fight ah, dragon. It's battle time performance would reflect that very thing. Um, <clears throat> Allied aerial reconnaissance had detected Japanese as they left for ball. And again, as opposed to Savo, accurately reported their position, their location, composition, and course. Merrill's force, which had been shelling the Japanese positions near Buka the day before, were vectored to meet and engage the incoming force. So as opposed to the American commanders at Savo, Merrill knew exactly who, well, he didn't know who, but he knew what was coming, when theoretically they would be there, their composition. The only thing he didn't know was the way that they were 
you know, the, the, the way they were lined out. Um, and even then he had a vague idea, but he didn't have a, he didn't have a great idea, but he knew what was coming. He knew when to expect them. And as such, he, uh, he lays his force out appropriately. And this is very important. He takes a position to block the Japanese entrance to Empress Augusta Bay. Uh, it, they were ready for battle. Merrill's people were at GQ. They were ready to rock and roll long before the Japanese ever entered the area. So as opposed to what happened on August 8th, these guys were prepared to the nth degree, ready to do whatever they needed to do. Uh, a key observation here is how Merrill had his forces laid out. And this is important here. Um, the fight takes place a little less than a year after the barroom brawl. The, this is, of course, the Friday the 13th battle off Guadalcanal, um, in which there is, as John Parshall famously says, there is no track chart. There never will be a track chart, so forget about it. Throw spaghetti on your plate. That's your track chart. Um, U.S. destroyers were used, shall we say, questioningly in that battle. Uh, you know, Daniel Callahan never really relayed his plans. The destroyers were shot to pieces for all intents and purposes and that's about all that they did at this time in november 1943 the united states navy had actually developed a true and honest to god night surface engagement tactical dispersal formation which is something that they did not have in 1942 merrill adheres to this new tactical formation for the most part although he gets a little free and loose with a couple of things here um his force was deployed along a north-south line of bearing with the leading destroyer three miles ahead of the flagship Montpelier. This is the Cleveland-class cruiser Montpelier. The cruisers were spaced 1,000 yards apart with 3,000 yards between the rear cruiser and the flagship of destroyer Division 46. While similar to the newly prescribed layout, Merrill chose to essentially detach his destroyers, and this is what makes this event relatively interesting, is that he basically takes his DDs and says, all right, you guys, you guys go out and do destroyer things go do what you are here to do which is music to arlie burke's ears because this is exactly what he has trained for this is exactly what he has trained his ships to do as opposed to the japanese as i said you know who hadn't worked together as a force the americans had so so they knew how to maneuver at night although as we'll see sometimes the best laid plans you know they go out to what is bill's famous saying what's your famous saying bill the plans are uh Never survive. Never survive contact with the enemy. There it is. <laughs> and that's that's kind of somewhat what happens here. Um, but the way that that Merrill detaches his destroyers, this is a direct lesson from Guadalcanal, not just Savoana, but but Guadalcanal. This is, you know, he's letting his destroyers do what they need to do. Um you know, we've consistently made comparisons between the upcoming gunfight and Savo for many reasons. And many of the same instances, same type of instances do occur at these same two events with one major difference. And that being the United States knew exactly where Omori was coming from, his movements, his composition and expected arrival time. The, the, the defense plan, it shows a number of lessons that have been learned from Guadalcanal. As you said already, for one thing, they're not tying the destroyers to the cruisers on short right. leashes, which is... Brilliant, especially when you combine it with someone like Burke, who's not even tying his destroyers to their destroyer, right. <laughs> a division commander. Um, they've also finally, um, unlike Admiral Wright at Tasforonga, figured out that maybe the long lances can actually go a considerable distance. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Now, previously, this had been a little bit of a problem because even if they had realized it, 
the capability to engage in a gunfight at any kind of considerable range was somewhat limited. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, they did have some forms of radar, but a lot of it was surface search radar. Very few ships had any kind of radar that could be used for gunnery control, and early gunnery control radars were pretty short range anyway. However, now you're getting into what I term sort of second or third generation radar in World War II, and that means that even in a night action, a cruiser can engage out to 15, 20,000 plus yards quite comfortably. And that means that they can now plan to engage at beyond or roughly at the limit of what they think long lance range is. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, they're still in the outer bracket of long lance range, um, but that's much less of an issue than it might sound because if you look at something like, let's say, the Battle of the Java Sea and compare how many torpedoes the Japanese had to put in the water to get hits, um, the ultimate long range of the long lance isn't actually that useful in and of itself. You know, sending a torpedo downrange at 20,000 yards, statistically, it's never going to hit a thing right. in the era of a straight runner torpedo with no homing system. Um, what it mainly gives them is the ability to move at warp speed at close range <laughs> um, mm. by just burning off the fuel. But by sitting at the, sitting at this bracket now, Although, was it, albeit they don't quite know it, what they've done is they've positioned themselves beyond the effective range of Japanese torpedoes, which is which is quite useful. Um, and the other thing, which is something that you see occasionally people trying to pull off in Guadalcanal, uh, in the Guadalcanal campaign, but doesn't usually work out, um, is this idea that you fire upon your opponent with the torpedoes, which at night should basically be a stealth shot, and you have all your guns trained and prepped on the target, and you open fire once the torpedo starts exploding, right. which theoretically, um, A, means your opponent's very unlikely to dodge the torpedoes because they don't know you're out there, they don't know you're, that you're attacking them, and B, it is going to make their damage control efforts much, much harder because if you get hit by a torpedo, then all your damage control parties are immediately grabbing stuff and going down below which is just in time for you to stop blowing things up and setting fire to things on the upper decks, which is now where the damage control parties aren't. Um, and now they're stuck in a situation that would eventually doom a number of ships uh, throughout 42 and 43, which is you have damage below, you have damage above, you can control one, but not the other. Right. <laughs> so, you know, if you can't control one, if you can't control both, you're going to end up losing the ship one way or the other. Right. Right. And then and that, that was... That's Ahead, Bill. To use the baseball expression, that was Drakenfell in for the save. Yeah, I apologize mm -hmm. to you. <laughs> Just as you asked, before you asked that question, I got a text with some really good news about my house. And so I was kind of <laughs> up in La La Land as you were asking the question, but there was Drakenfell in for the save. So thank you for that. No worries. So that's exactly what he plans, he being Merrill, plans to do. And that was perfectly laid out. He's going to theoretically stay out of the range of the long lances. He's going to have his DDs run in there, sling out their torpedoes, get their fish in the water before the Japanese know what the hell's going on. And then once the torpedoes hit, 
the Clevelands are going to let loose with their six-inch gunfire. This is a lesson learned from the Japanese themselves. You know, that was one of their favorite tactics of the surface warfare around, you know, anywhere, was to let their DDs go in there, and cruisers too, for that matter, go in there, fire their long lances, let those theoretically torpedoes hit first, and then boom, 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 open fire. So as the plans are laying out, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Omori receives inaccurate information to the effect that the U.S. transports were still offloading their supplies just before midnight on November 1st. I'm not sure where the hell he gets this information from because the vast majority of those U.S. transports were gone. They weren't even in the area. So I'm not sure what the Japanese thought they saw. I mean, I, I do believe that there were two or three ships in the area. But the transport fleet that was supplying the people that were ashore, by and large, they were out of there. So I'm not really sure what the hell the Japanese saw or what they thought they saw. Inaccurate Japanese reports, you know, happen all did through. They, did they have their own coast watchers that were giving them some of these reports? I, I don't think so here. No, not not. They wouldn't have been right here. I mean, did they have coast watchers to an extent? I mean, yeah, they had people on a lot of the islands. But, I mean, for here, I don't believe. I think this is just piss poor aerial reconnaissance is is okay. what this is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Anybody jump in. But I don't think it was nothing but just know it's bad. Old, obviously populated by the Japanese. That's why we're landing. Yeah. But uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the Japanese don't have quite the same system of uh, of human reconnaissance. Uh, as the U.S. does at this point, the the U.S. as you mentioned, the Coast Watcher system, etc. Mm -hmm. The U.S. has this very well integrated re recon system. You've got the aerial recon, um, and that's being provided by multiple air forces. You've got um, <laughs> you've got the U.S. Navy is doing recon with flying boats. Right. The U.S. Army Air Force is doing recon with land-based aircraft, and they're far enough apart in their operational doctrines that these are almost like having two separate sets of eyes on the subject. Mm -hmm. um, you've also got the Royal Australian Air Force occasionally helping out. Um, and Aussie doctrines. Yeah. Um, and then on land, you've got, on, on the friendly territory, you've got um, dedicated... Uh, spot set up to keep an eye on things, but you also have this kind of behind the lines coastal watch system, which again is very well supplied. They've got a radio net to let everybody know what's going on. And although there are some communication issues between the army and the navy, broadly speaking, if someone, whether it's a submarine or a coast watcher or a plane, says, "Hey, I've seen this thing," then the all the the other recon elements usually get alerted in fairly decent time to go and double check. And once you've had a, several reports, those reports, again, usually make their way down the line and the relevant officers are called, oh, okay, this is coming as far as we can tell. Mm -hmm. um, the Japanese, for the most part, they, they don't have an organized beach watching system in their own territory. Um, they have some recon posts. They will get a lot better at this later in the war, but at this point, um, they don't have a particularly well set up recon um, positions in their own territory. And as you said, they're mostly relying on aerial recon, mm -hmm. which is getting progressively more and more dangerous as more and more capable and more US aircraft are being brought into the theater. And a lot of their aircraft are not particularly well suited for... Um, this kind of work. I mean, they're, they're technically designed as recon aircraft, but an awful lot of the Japanese recon aircraft that are seen are kind of one or two man seaplanes or mm -hmm. and so forth. Low so point, you've got a pilot and a tail gunner. So they've got specific jobs and they're trying to do 
aerial recon from a cockpit that's on top of the plane. <clears throat> so they can either see things far away, but if they get close enough to get a lot of detail, they're having to maneuver as well. Um, they do have things like the H6Ks and the H8Ks, which are much more capable. They've got under underbelly rec- um, viewing platforms and dedicated people looking for ships, and therefore they're, they're much, much, much more capable aircraft for that. But they tend to be very big flying targets for Hellcat and Wildcat pilots. Um, no, that was a that was a masterful way of explaining Japanese uh, aerial reconnaissance because it's something that that you know throughout the war has been for the most part. Now there are some instances where their aerial reconnaissance is pinpoint accurate, but there's other times where it's like, man, where are you getting this information? It's like, did you? Did you have a fever dream or something? Did you make this up? So it makes sense in, in the way that you explain that. And it's this is one of those instances where their recon is not good at all. Um, Amori, as he's coming in, and the Japanese are developing a radar system. Uh, it's nothing like the United States uh, radar. And it is there on some of his ships, but it's very rudimentary. It's uh, the, the operators were poorly trained because it was something new to the Japanese Navy. Uh, they're going to rely on visual spotters. It's their tried and true technique as they're coming into a night surface battle. This is something that they did. You know, They have specially trained people for this. Bill talked about that in an episode, but these people were literally handpicked to do this very thing. Um, as opposed to that, we've already talked about Merrill's uh, radar abilities. Uh, almost every, actually, I think every ship in his formation did have radar uh, capabilities, and they were all cooking as the Japanese are coming in. Um, at 0227, the radar aboard the United States light cruisers lights up with the first detection of incoming Japanese force at a range of 35,900 yards. That's way the hell out there. Um, as he receives this information, Merrill changed course north and deployed his cruisers to counter the enemy main body, only to reverse course to have his dest- remaining destroyers in the van. Now, he detached most of his DDs, but he still had a couple with him in along this column, uh, in his fighting column, I'm sorry. Uh, Destroyer Division 46, uh, destroyers soon detached to deliver their own separate torpedo attack. Um, at the same time, this this is where the battle starts to get a little confusing. It kind of turns into a furball here. So Arleigh Burke's people are coming in now. They, they, they have detection of the Japanese. They know the Japanese are there. They're looking at their formation. Burke's people are coming in to deliver their torpedo attack. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's right now that that uh, Merrill is waiting on this information from Burke. What what is Burke doing now? What what are his destroyers going in there to do? Uh, well, you know, as as we said, he 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 wants to go in there and get get his torpedoes in the water as quickly as possible. Um, so you're, you're having to get in. Um, Fairly, fairly fast, but this this is always the compromise of night actions. Um, as we know, Burke like Burke does like to press on a fair old clip, um, but you if you're pressing on too quickly, you're kicking up too much of a bow wave, especially in those waters where you get an awful lot of uh, biological phosphorescence. Um, you come in too quickly, you might actually just be spotted by the fact that it's it's fairly difficult to miss. You know, for glowing v shapes <laughs> coming towards you um so they 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 sort of playing this very careful regulatory game of how fast can we go before we become too obvious and then using that you know how do we update our course to get a, a decent torpedo attack in and you've also got to decide how much information you're going to give to 
the people behind you. And we know that he does this. He uses um, the the voice broadcast uh, radio to, yes, to, yeah. to to let people know, yeah, I've launched my torpedoes. They're in the water. Um, but this is another thing that a, com a commander has to really think about because the more radioactivity he generates, the more chances there are that the enemy might not necessarily overhear what he's saying, but get an idea that someone is out there transmitting. And if you weren't expecting anyone to be out there transmitting, it's probably not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's there. So he sends a, a message that I found to be humorous. He uh, he gets mm. to your point. He gets on the TBS, the talk between ships and radios to Merrill, and he says. Uh, my guppies are swimming, <laughs> which is which is yeah, a nice, polite way of saying fish are in the water. Mm. Which yeah, I've fish. I've never heard them called guppies. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. my guppies are swimming. Um, at this point, the Japanese fire a flare uh, or, or drop a flare. A flare illuminates part of the United States task force at which the Japanese themselves launch torpedoes. As soon as that flare goes off, the Japanese see American cruiser formation. They go, oh, God. And and they launch their torpedoes, which is their typical tried and true tactic here. Um, while Merrill was waiting for his people's torpedoes to theoretically detonate against the targets, this is why he's withholding gunfire. Once that flare goes off, it's apparent to Merrill that eh, I think they know we're here. Um, Radar aboard Montpelier indicates targets that the and indicated that the Japanese had actually turned, either to avoid the incoming fish that Burke's people launch, mm -hmm. or to deploy to counter the U.S. cruiser force that had just recently been spotted. Either way, he knows because the radar is telling him that the Japanese are turning. There ain't no way in hell that Burke's torpedoes are going to hit that force. At this point, he's like, you know what? Caution to the wind cut loose and this is when his four cruisers open up open fire with their main battery this is at 0249 so this is progressing pretty quick pretty quick um as the u.s cruisers open fire japanese answered in kind while at the same time destroyer division 46 this is the um other destroyer formation mm -hmm. is ordered to make their torpedo attacks. Uh, Merrill's understanding of radar and the picture that it provided was critical in that he allowed his ships to fire via radar picture as opposed to visual detection, thus allowing all his ships to get in the first gunfire blows. So, you know, he's he's a student of radar. He's experienced in the fact that he can direct and or order his ships to to use radar-directed gunfire in their attacks, and he does this again. Just like at Blackett's Strait, he does it again here, and his cruisers start laying down the lead. Um, radar-directed main battery fire from Montpelier specifically was very accurate. Initial salvos at the cruiser send, set the cruiser Sendai fire. Uh, to your point, Track, this is an old ship, but regardless, she's taken a lot of six-inch gunfire uh, from the American cruisers, and we talked about I don't remember exactly what the rate of fire was for a Cleveland-class cruiser, and I know each ship is going to be you know, as fast as their gun crews, but still, these things are flinging them out there. I mean, they're, they're spitting fire out pretty quick, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the six-inch, you, you can rely on six to eight rounds a minute. Um, they were known to get faster in drill or when the crew really, really was, was going for it. Um, but the other thing that they were capable of doing, which the, the Brooklyn's were slightly better at because they had the extra turret, mm -hmm. um, was that once you had all your guns locked in, especially with radar, 
um, you could basically ripple fire because salvo fire was necessary to estimate the, your, your range via visual spotting of the splashes. Right. Um, so in a daylight engagement, if you're relying on visual spotting, a Cleveland would maybe do four, four its forward turrets and its aft turrets or its upper turrets and lower turrets in half salvos until it's got the range established. But with radar, which is constantly feeding information and you know it's pretty much spot on you can it's not quite fire at will but you can actually start sending rounds down range basically at whatever turret grouping you want so if you want to do pairs of turrets then even if even if you're doing it relatively slowly let's say six rounds a minute so south over 10 seconds if you then split that into half you're doing six shells every five seconds Mm -hmm. that has a psychological impact on the enemy because there's always shells coming in and obviously that time gets less and less between incoming shells, um, the better the gun crews are doing. Plus, you ha- also have the fact that um, you don't even have to do half salvos. You can literally just have the guns pointed at your target, and whenever a turret report's ready, just go, right, that turret's firing, um, which was something that, as you mentioned earlier, that Helena loved, loved to do, yeah. and just pour rounds down range. Um and a lot of it is also demonstrating the difference that's going on in the night fighting doctrine mm-hmm. because American night fighting doctrine has come on leaps and bounds since yeah. early 1942. So now they're, as you mentioned, they're locking in with radar and they're just being able to pump rounds downrange all the time, whether they can see the Japanese visually or not. And even when they're not firing, they're able to keep track of them so they know when they recommence firing where they're going to aim their guns. The Japanese night fighting doctrine isn't bad. And, you know, a year before this, it would have been superb relative to the opposition. But they haven't really advanced all that much. It's a little bit too early for them to have any significant radar warning receivers aboard. Um, They're certainly not got any fire control radar the way that the US does, you know, barely got any surface search developed at this point. And so they're largely relying on their pre-war doctrine of flares and star shell. And as we see as the battle goes on, when they've got their flare and star shell up and they can see US ships, they're not actually too bad at hitting. Right. The problem is they're getting that in intermittent bursts, whereas the US is just able to keep sending shells downrange pretty much whenever they like. Yeah. They're just pouring it on. They're just mm. pouring it on. Um, the to that point, uh, the incoming fire is such that it causes the Japanese formation and the ships within it to start swerving violently to avoid the shell splashes as they're coming in. Um, two Japanese destroyers, uh, Samadare and Shiratsuyu, go crunch and they they hit each other here, uh, which causes both destroyers to retire. They're they're I don't know the specific degree of damage, but it's enough that both of these ships get out of here. Uh, they get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, further accurate American salvos caused the Japanese to continue to maneuver frantically, causing Japanese cruisers Miyoko to collide, or Japanese cruiser Miyoko to collide with the destroyer Hatsukaze. So, I mean, this is, you can imagine that in Japanese formation, it probably looks like, you know, like something out of a cartoon, because, I mean, they're just, they're doing this thing, and you got, you know, four ships hitting each other at some point in one way or another, trying to avoid this American shell fire, which will tell you there how much shell fire is actually raining down. If you're causing an entire formation to swerve about and run around like, you know, the Keystone mm-hmm. cops, that's a lot of lead coming down range, man. If you're making an entire formation to flee, 
there, there's a, that's a lot of shell fire coming in. And and this is also another reflection of the radar versus visual issue because um, with the American ships with their radar going, they know where their friends are. Yeah. So they don't have to have the their other ships in visual range. They can spread out a bit more. Whereas uh, the Japanese, they've learned already some of the hazards of what happens if you have two or more groups of ships um, out there and they don't have visual uh, visual um, spotting to each other. So there's a for their night fighting doctrine, there is a limit to how far they can spread their formations out. Mm-hmm. And that means that A, obviously they make a slightly easier target, and B, as we just covered, if you start to panic them, it's much, much easier for collisions to occur. Whereas if you have if you flipped it around the other way on on American ships, you have a bit more room to maneuver. Now, obviously, that's not necessarily going to always save you, but um, it, it does make it much less likely that you're just going to go randomly crunching into your friends. Yep, yep, and that's it's 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 a perfect description of the American shellfire here and and the Japanese reaction to it. Go ahead, Bill. By this point in the war, we had a crude form of identify friend or foe or IFF. Do yes. you know um, we were using it at this point in this battle? Uh, yes, we were, because there is an instance where this comes into play here in just a few minutes with one of the American destroyers. Um, there was a sort of IFF, you know, to, to, to what you were saying that, um, does help, but it's, it wasn't foolproof as we're going to see here in just a second. Um, the Japanese are, to your point, Drac are, are returning fire and they are hitting some of the American vessels and particularly USS Denver. She takes at least three hits from Japanese eight inch shells, but they don't do a whole heck of a lot of damage. And this is goes back to your point mm-hmm. that you'd made earlier about the Cleveland class being a fairly stout light cruiser uh, in terms of design and, and performance. Um, at this point, and Bill, this is where your comments are going to come into play here. The battle starts to kind of turn into a melee, really. Things are starting to break down with just about any night surface action. Things, you know, go out the window here pretty quickly. Um, the American destroyers are maneuvering and they're they're trying to consolidate themselves for another torpedo attack because they're literally, it, again, I think it was you, Drek, that said in the beginning that, you know, they're detached to do their own thing, but even within their own formations they're detached to do their own thing so mm-hmm. it's literally they're just they're running around doing their own damn thing there's torpedoes in the water there's gunfire being exchanged at this point there's a couple of instances where friendly fire almost occurs and it was IFF that helped them go wait 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 uh uh-uh, check fire that's an american vessel that you're about to unload upon here so in the um it happens a couple times specifically to the USS foot i believe it was um USS Foot, which is DD five eleven, uh, attempts to rejoin her formation or her division because she's losing juice here. As she plows through the sea, she took a Japanese long lance that blew the stern off of the ship, but did not sink her. And this goes to the to the stoutness of the American Fletcher class destroyer here. She takes a long lance, loses her stern, and is still afloat. You know. She's now become a hazard to the other Americans. She's a navigational hazard to the other American destroyers in the area, and she was doing more harm than good. However, in a remarkable display of both damage control and seamanship, as I said, the crew of foot managed to keep the destroyer afloat despite the loss of all propulsion, no steering control, and her main deck aft was awash. 
and this is this is what's really cool here. The resilience of the Fletcher class was on full display here as she remained in the fight long enough to be credited with taking down at least one Japanese aircraft the following morning. Her crew suffers 19 killed in action and a further 17 wounded. This is after losing her friggin' stern to a Japanese torpedo. This thing still is up there pumping rounds into the air. I mean, that's... She would have had an extreme up angle, which would have made it really hard to train those guns. Yeah, and I mean, but I mean, if that's not a, 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 you know, crowning achievement of resiliency of American shipbuilding, particularly Fletcher class, I, I don't know what is. You know, please find me another example. Hmm. And and you also got to bear in mind the long lance ain't a small torpedo. No, has a lot of boom. Hmm. <laughs> uh, it's one uh, it's one thing for a destroyer to take hit from you know an eighteen inch airdrop torpedo and keep going with part of it missing. Get hit by a twenty-four inch long lance that's that's got you know almost a thousand pounds of explosive in it. You better have some pretty decent strength, watertight bulkheads. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's you know you know Guadalcanal again. There's there's several cases of American cruisers taking long lances and just being eviscerated, or hmm. in the form of some destroyers taking long lances and just ceasing to exist. I mean, just and they're gone. You know, so hmm. the fact that this thing takes a long lance, sheds her stern like a snake losing its skin, and still manages to stay in the fight to an extent, you know, is is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Hmm. As the American destroyers under Arleigh Burke closed in on their enemy, the lead destroyers took the still afire Japanese cruiser Sendai. This is the relic that we talked about. Sendai, yeah. I go back a couple episodes or two, is the ship that the USS Washington opens fire on at first and the uh, uh, the battleship fight off of the shores of Guadalcanal. She's tracking Sendai, fires at her three salvos and misses. But regardless, she's tracking Sendai. So Sendai is a ship you've heard before. If the name is familiar, there's a reason for it. Um, Sendai is taken under fire by the American destroyers under Arleigh Burke, and they pretty much finally kill her with a spread of torpedoes. Bill, this is one of the times that American destroyer torpedoes actually work. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and they, they, these were the same Mark 14s that submarines used, right? So, um, yeah, the, but it's the, the surface launch is the Mark 15, but so it's essentially the same yeah. functional functionality wise. It's basically got the same issues. Yeah. So and we, this is, we were lucky any time it worked. Lucky, but mm. when they do work, mm. they work very well. And then they're they're no long lance, but they pack enough of a wallop to uh, help put Sendai down finally mm. beneath the beneath the waves here. Mm-hmm. Um, so trading gunfire with the Japanese uh, ships for the better part of 10 minutes, the American destroyers are now ordered by Merrill to rejoin the main body so as to pursue the now retreating Japanese. So in this chaotic melee that's going on, the United States has pretty much served the Japanese, uh, you know, their rear ends on a plate and said, here you go, you know, please leave now, please leave my waters. And that's essentially what uh, Japanese Admiral Omori does. Uh, again, you know, Japanese intelligence is, you know, an oxymoron. It's it's not there. Not I'm not belittling the Japanese people. I'm saying naval intelligence here is is you know, essentially non-existent. He believes that he had sunk at least one American cruiser and was in fear typically of American or allied air power that would come with the rising morning sun. Um, 
So he uh, orders his ships to come about and head back to Rabaul. Now, of course, as we know, there are no American ships that are lost in this event, uh, certainly not an American cruiser. There's a few that take hits, the Denver being one. But, uh, guys, as as the Japanese are withdrawing, Merrill isn't going to let him go, is he? he? He decides he wants to keep the pressure on him. What is he? Uh, what's going on here from now on? Well, um, at this point, uh, and it, it kind of it also gives you some idea of how the tables have turned because during most of the Guadalcanal campaign, there was kind of this informal arrangement of the U.S. ships ruled the day with the backup of American air power, but the Japanese ships ruled the night, and you know that's one of the reasons Macau gave for withdrawing after First Savo was he was worried about American air power catching him in on in, during the the day. But now you have a situation where the Japanese are still rightfully scared of what U.S. air power might do to them during the day, but they've also just lost an engagement at night, um, even if they don't necessarily entirely realize it. Um, And since the Americans have the confidence that even if they close in on Rabaul, they can get air cover to come and help them out if things get a little bit too hot, um, they decide they're going to keep pursuing and of course the clevelands are the ones with the longest range guns they've got the the heaviest weapons so they keep flinging shells down range just Mm -hmm. to see if they can cripple and finish off another target and and to that point the japanese by 0400 they are retreating but they're being pursued and they're stragglers the people at the back end of their formation are coming under relatively accurate long-range american shell fire Mm -hmm. um it's the U.S. claims many hits. I was unable to find Japanese records that, you know, say, yeah, yeah, we got hit mm. by this long range. But regardless, they're dropping shells around these ships and, you know, at, at the very least, they're scaring the hell out of them. Um, the American destroyer Spence, this was the ship I wrongly stated it was the USS Foot initially. She's Foot's, uh, Foot's the one that loses her stern. Spence mm-hmm. is the one that almost comes under American fire, so forgive me. For, for that. Um, Spence DD-512 had earlier received a hit below the waterline by a Japanese shell that failed to explode. Nevertheless, sh- ship sustained damage and continued the fight. However, shortly thereafter, she sustained an engine failure, which is kind of odd, but she sustained an engine failure as apparently there was water in her fuel lines, which again is rather odd. Um, but regardless, it it is what it is. Causes her to lose power as stated and fall out of formation. She narrowly avoids being a victim of friendly fire Bill, this is where your your point comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, she actually almost kind of does come under fire from one of the U.S. Uh, light cruisers for a brief period of time, despite having IFF. The IFF is saying, mm, hey, you know, and they're still taken under fire until at the very last moment they realize, no, that is an American destroyer. Um, Spence is she's kind of hapless in this event, is she not? I mean, she, you know. She 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 gets a hit. She has water in her fuel, and she just kind of she almost comes under American gunfire. She's just kind of floating around out there, kind of being a menace to, <laughs> to her own people at this point. Um, around 0510, Spence still powerless opens fire uh, open fire on one of the Japanese strag powerless. I mean, she doesn't have any propulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, she opens fire on one of the Japanese stragglers, engaging her essentially alone. Until 0519, when her consorts came to her aid, with Spence exhausting all, over 95% of her ammunition. That's a lot of shooting, man. I mean, destroyers, I don't know what their what their 
loadout was in terms of ammunition. But if you're firing 95% of your ammo, you're doing a hell of a lot of shooting throughout the night. That's, yeah, that's several thousand rounds downrange. That's a lot mm -hmm. of firing, man. God mm -hmm. bless those guys who had to clean those things. And bear in mind the five inch uh, the five inch thirty eight is um, it doesn't have the kind of semi automatic loader trays and rammers etc that battleship guns do. Um, the the shells and uh, cartridges they're coming up via the hoists, but the gun crews are having to physically pick up those things and put them in the loading trays. So every single shell that's fired by the five-inch guns is someone's having to cart that around <laughs> inside a gun mounting um, by hand. And those things are not light. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a lot of manual labor. These guys are going to be physically wiped out you know, within an hour. And the fact that they kept going on for that long is absolutely remarkable. So as daylight broke, of course, the two forces are pulling away from each other with Merrill forming his ships into the circular anti-aircraft formation for surface ships. And that's primarily for anti-air defense, isn't it? The circular formation, yeah. Drac? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something that's kind of developed through 1942 as they're experimenting with actually what's the best way to defend aircraft carriers. Um, it's, mm. been, it's been used in a few of the fleet problems in the 1930s, again, while they're trying to work out what's the best defense against air attack. Um, but it, it, about as good as you're going to get because, of course, you, you can put a very strong front in one particular direction, but an aircraft is so much faster than a ship, it can just loop around and, and come after you from another direction. So the, the main point of the circular formation is that it gives no weak spot for the Japanese aircraft to approach from, um, which is just as well because there's a lot of Japanese aircraft coming after them. Uh, they do That's want right. some revenge. Um, it's about 90 airplanes inbound at this point, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, so, and this this is the thing. It's like if you think about it again, you mm -hmm. know, even going back to 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 Guadalcanal to the Eastern Solomons and Santa Cruz. Yeah, um, you know, Hornet was lost in those engagements. Enterprise was battered, and neither of those attacks involved 90 aircraft. I think. If you add up all the aircraft that are sort of eventually not torn it out, that doesn't even add up to 90, let alone 90 all at once. Mm -hmm. um, and we know just like how many anti-aircraft weapons those carriers and the fast battleships and the cruisers and the destroyers, etc., were all carrying to try and prevent that happening and obviously didn't manage to prevent it entirely. Whereas now you have this 90 aircraft strike and four cruisers and eight destroyers. And they managed to come yeah. through pretty much unscathed. And there's yeah. no Navy cap above them. So they had to rely yeah. on US and New Zealand aircraft coming to their aid. Mm -hmm. And as a result of these surface ships engaging with their anti-aircraft guns and the limelight aircraft, they were able to down 17 of those 90 inbound aircraft. So Merrill was very wise to put his ships in that anti-air formation as this uh, strike was inbound. Yeah, that, that's a perfect uh, perfect way to talk about, you know, and we won't necessarily get into deep depth here about, about the American air defense's uh, capabilities. And I was, you know, hearing what you were saying about Santa Cruz and Hornet and Enterprises, you know, anti-air defenses at those events. And I mean, it's just, you know, you're, you got Japanese aircraft that are attacking 
you know, a surface force, to your point, Bill, without combat air. Well, I mean, there was combat, but not to what you we'd seen in the past combat air patrol. And, and, you know, they relatively defend themselves with just Bofors and 20 millimeters and dual purpose main batteries. I mean, Cleveland's could, and that that's a, that's a hell of a lot of firepower that these guys are throwing out that repels this Japanese uh, incoming strike. Yeah. So, so what's the outcome of all of this stuff? We win. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We win. So, no, well, I mean, it's a resounding uh, American naval victory here. And as I say resounding, you know, it doesn't carry the implications of the barroom brawl or the battleship fight, but it's an overwhelming American victory. And that, you know, it, it, the surface forces under Merrill resoundingly defeat the Japanese surface forces at night using new technology, you know, new tactics, new doctrine, and they prove all of that. To be successful. And lessons learned. Yes. And yeah, lessons well, learned. And all of that is, yeah, all that doctrine and technology is built on the lessons that were learned or have been learned. You know, it's 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 all, again, beating a dead horse, but we always say that Guadalcanal was a schoolhouse and, and it informs everything that comes after it. And this is a perfect example of that very thing. Um, the Japanese suffer the loss of the cruiser Sendai as well as the destroyer Hatsukaze. Uh, they also suffered significant damage to two uh, heavy cruisers as well as two more destroyers. Seven American ships were damaged in one way or another in the battle with only the sternless USS foot being categorized as heavily damaged, which I'd say, you know, you lose your stern. Yeah, that definitely categories uh, that definitely fits in the category of well, was she damage. recovered or was she scuttled? No, she was recovered. I forget where they towed her. There was a Port track, maybe you remember. There's a, there's a port nearby that they tow her to. Um, it would be a Spiritu Santo, I would guess. That's I, I guess I, I, I without be- looking it up, I don't frankly yeah. know. But I mean, that would that, that was kind of the go-to for the Guadalcanal campaign. I, was, well, I suppose they might have towed her into one of the islands in and around Guadalcanal for immediate patch up. It, if for nothing else but to just to, you know plug the hole until they got yeah. into where to where she could be worked right. on but but she doesn't she doesn't see any more significant action after this i mean she is repaired she's not scuttled she is repaired and she does make it back to the united states for a full and uh complete repair but you don't really see her sin- seeing too much more action in the pacific war after this for one reason or another because it takes her a while to be repaired regardless yeah. um Casualties on the American side are relatively light, um, considering what they, you know, potentially could have been had this fight gone the other way. Um, Amori's attempt at a repeat of Savo Island is obviously a complete and utter failure. The lack of accurate intelligence for the Japanese and the significant amount of accurate intelligence for the Americans sealed his fate before they, before his ships ever were detected by radar. This was almost. Now, unless there would have been some catastrophic failure in American uh, command structure, this was a foregone conclusion really before the Japanese ever, you know, put their bows into Empress Augusta Bay. Um, for his role, Merrill is praised as being aggressive when he needed to be and cautious when caution was called for. Um, the first and probably greatest American U.S. naval historian, Samuel L. Morrison, classified him as, and I quote, in the face of a constantly changing tactical situation, he kept his poise, confidence, and power of quick decision. His swift, simultaneous turns to avoid enemy torpedoes while he was pouring out continuous rapid fire were masterpieces of maneuver, end quote. 
And I would tend to agree with that. Of all the naval battles we've discussed, with the exception maybe of the battleship fight, and the only reason is because of that, it's because of Lee and the Washington, this is a significant just beatdown of Japanese. What do you guys think? Well, I think Morrison was certainly the first World War II historian, and right. um, he was generally right, although I disagree with him on a few few matters. And track. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, sorry. No, do you think the is there is are we ex exaggerating the significance of this battle? Um, I mean, on, as you say, on the one hand, it's not kind of it's not a a reverse of first Savo. It hasn't left the entire Japanese force on fire and sinking. Right. Um, but what it what it does show is what we've been hinting at throughout this episode is this accumulation of more flexible tactical doctrine, a functional night battle doctrine, the correct use of surface and gunnery radar, um, the correct use of formations, and also um, mixed in with, as, as Morrison says, this element of caution. Because it would be mm -hmm. all, it, with all of the other advantages, it would have been far too easy for um, Merrill to go, okay, we've got all these advantages and we're just going to you know, as soon as we open fire on the enemy, we're just going to close in and keep hitting them. But if he'd mm -hmm. done that, that potentially could have led him into range of a follow-up long launch strike, um, which, you know, it, it, to a certain degree almost resembles what happened to Wright at Tassafaronga. So I think although it's from a tactical perspective of how many ships did we sink, it's not a, a massively important thing. Right. From a strategic perspective, it is hugely important because it reflects a coming together of all these various elements, both technological and strategic, that the U.S. has been working on. And it shows that now not only does the U.S. have the capability to win night actions against the Japanese, but it also has the men who can do it in a very efficient way. Right. And then, you know, subsequently... It's now now it's on the the Japanese are the ones on the back foot in night actions for the most part. Yep. So it it is a big turning point. <laughs> um even if the in the battle itself is not, you know, hugely significant. But you know, there, there there's a lot of there's a lot I think there's a lot of engagements in World War Two where you can kind of point to that and go, like, this is where it changed, which makes it hugely mm -hmm. important, even if not too many aircraft or ships or tanks or whatever were destroyed on that particular day. Right. No, I agree 100%. You know, I mean, in terms of shipping losses, this is not going to cripple the Japanese for the rest of the war, not even close. But to your point and to your point, Bill, this is this is where the United States Navy firmly takes the upper hand and just crunches it and holds it for the rest of the war. Because not only do we have the ships capable of doing this, like the Cleveland class, Fletcher class that we talked about earlier, but and the numbers to do it. It, we actually have the skill set. We have the blueprints on how to do it, and it's just it's just a matter of time now that any time, for the most part, that the United States and Japanese forces tangle on the surface, things mm -hmm. do not turn out as they would have earlier in the war. Uh, it's just that you know yeah. we have the doctrine set to do this, and and the United States Navy does it with expertise for the rest of the war here. Yeah. And Drac, that summary is why you have the the audience that you have. That was, that was <laughs> a masterful summary. And you're right, you. Merrill. 
Merrill proves gives provides a recipe to future commanders and what the what the rest what the formula is going to be for victory going forward. But before we close, um, I do want to correct one thing I said earlier. Uh, let's see how many people are still listening because if we get comments about this, then we'll know they didn't pay attention to the end. I said that Arlie Burke was uh, second to Halsey to because of the aviator to, to surface warfare officer um, last shot. It was actually Mark Mitcher that he Mitcher. was seconded. Yeah. And so, yeah, and, and neither of them liked the other guy. And neither of them were very happy about it. And I just had a, you know, you know <clears throat> blank out or something like that caused me to miss the point. But it's a, it's an important point from the personalities standpoint, if not for the outcome standpoint. Well, to your point, Bill, and we keep saying point, but to your point, Bill, none of the three of us picked up on that mistake. <laughs> well, somebody, one of our listeners, I guarantee you did, and they were going to give us a lot of grief over it. Yeah. So I needed to and, and, and and then to be to be fair, you know, a, a lot of the U.S. officers who are outstanding in 4243 they end up on various admiral staffs mm-hmm. off and mm-hmm. on in 4445 <laughs> so it's like but saying burke ends up on some admiral staff yeah he he does exactly mm-hmm. which one is bouncing around all <laughs> over the place yeah. all right gentlemen do you uh anybody else have anything to add to this event i think we're i think we wrapped it up pretty good mm-hmm. outstanding we're good Well, with that, we want to thank you very much for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Also, if you want to see the video version of this and any of our other episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel called Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. Uh, If you have a question, comment, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. As I know most of you already are, if you aren't, please subscribe to Drax. youtube channel as well it is a wealth of information uh how many videos do you post a week man it's a load of them uh it's usually three the the default is three wednesday mm-hmm. saturday sundays um but uh usually twice a month there's also a friday video of some description that goes up goodness gracious <laughs> oh, no, you that's a lot of production time brother <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that's a lot well it's outstanding keep it up man we all love thank it. you so with that, I want to oh, go ahead, Bill. Doing the nation of service, no, the, oh, the free world of service. Yeah, I'll tell you that. Outstanding. Yeah, it's really good material. <laughs> well, uh, I, I want to thank you very much for listening. Uh, once again, my name is Seth Paird, and thanks again, Bill. Yeah, thank you, Druckenfell. Hope to see you again in the future. Thank you very much. You too. All right, guys. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>